Welcome to Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale and hosted by Michael Davis. Vince and Joe Vitale are currently leading the Zacharias Institute. Both hold doctorates from the University of Oxford, Vince in philosophy, and Joe in women in the Old Testament. In a world that increasingly sees the Christian faith is irrational and irrelevant, it is more important than ever for believers to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Ask Away is brought to you by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. It's time to Ask Away. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Away with Vincent Joe Vitale. I am your host, Michael Davis. There are so many different perspectives on justice that it is oftentimes difficult to discern where biblical justice starts and where our culture's secularized version of it begins. The fact that we are all made in the image of God makes us all justice-seeking creatures, but for many Christians, there is a misunderstanding between fighting for justice as an end in itself and pursuing first the kingdom of God. But before we get started, I am excited to announce that we have joining us in our studios, Pippa Shaper of Home From Home Ministries in South Africa. Pippa, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your ministry? Thank you. Yeah, I'm British, as you can probably hear by my accent. Ooh. I have been another one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no I was hoping Michael. to hear a nice little Afrikaans accent yeah. or something. No, can't do that. <laughs> um, I've been living in South Africa for the last 26 years. So, so my husband, who is South African, and I moved to South Africa when the referendum happened in 92 after Mandela had been released. And we were looking at, was the country going to go towards democracy? And we said that if it was going to go to democracy, we'd give it a try and go back for a year. Here I am, 26 years later, <laughs> I still live there. That's what happens. I first became involved when we decided to stay about 24 years ago. I decided to get involved. I couldn't be a mom sitting back on the sidelines just seeing what was going on, a country of immense poverty, immense difficulties. And that was the beginning of the HIV AIDS pandemic in South Africa, where children were dying on a daily basis. People were dying. There were no antiretroviral treatments available at that time. And I started working in a children's home looking after AIDS orphans. They had been orphaned by AIDS and they were HIV positive themselves. Mm -hmm. Children were dying on a daily basis um, and it was more of a hospice than a children's home. When, when ARVs then became available in about the turn, uh, turn of the millennium, about 2000, we saw that children were going to now be able to live a normal length of life and saying, well, what is the best place for them to be living? The best place is not in a big institutionalised children's home with 80, 100, 120 kids. So we started taking children out of the children's home and putting them into small family homes, a normal house in a normal street with no more than six children living with a foster mum. And we saw just how well that worked. It was much better for the children being able to form a bond with one particular caregiver rather than shift workers coming in and out, being able to not be stigmatised of going to be able to walk to school with their friends, being able to play with their friends afterwards, not being driven to school on a bus with children's home written on the side of it, not having a sign on the outside of the house that they lived in. We saw how well it worked and wanted to do more of that. So in 2005, um, Jane Payne and myself, she's a social worker, um, moved away from the children's home and started up exactly that model of care of a normal house and a normal street with a foster mum or where possible foster mum and dad together looking up after six children. So today we have now got 36 homes around the Western Cape um, with nearly 200 children. Mm. We're helping children and organisations in other areas of the country, indeed into Southern Africa now, starting up their own homes as well, using our model of care so that more and more children can have families created for them because I think we all know that families are not 
just the normal a mommy and a daddy get married and have two children. You know, that's a that's a luxury for a lot of us. Mm. And for other people, we create families and families can be made from people through love. Mm. Wow. It, it makes me think of that verse, God sets the lonely in families and how much you are just practically yeah. living that out. Um, gosh, you must just have so many stories mm. of these different uh, children that you've come to know. Uh, could you just tell us one, one, just one story about just yeah. one of the kids in your home? And there, there are so many of them. I, I'm going to tell you one that's a very new one, a little boy called Eddie, who's just come into one of our homes. Um, we got a call from social services asking if we could take in a child who is now to, in a shelter. Eddie was born to a mum Eddie's not his real name, by the way. We never mm -hmm. identify our children. Mm. Um, Eddie had been born to a mum who was really not fit and able to be able to look after him. Um, so she was on the streets a lot, um, substance abusing and really not able to care. So she gave her child to a caregiver, and I use it in inverted commas, a caregiver, a lady who looked after nine children in two shacks out of the back of her house. Mm. And when social services were called by neighbours to say, there's something really wrong going on here. The children living in these shacks were very badly um, malnourished. They were extremely cold. They were diseased. And the children were removed immediately from her care. Eddie was taken into a baby sanctuary for immediate emergency place of safety care. He was four and a half years old, but the size of a two-year-old because mm -hmm. of the malnourishment that he'd had as a little one. Um, but with this amazingly buoyant spirit. when What was interesting to see was when his mom, biological mum came to visit, how he shrank away from her, which was as obviously, you, know, you can imagine the abuse that he suffered at her hands to be able to be so fearful of her. Mm. Um, so we were asked to take in Eddie um, as a, went to one of our foster homes. And luckily we had just opened a new home. So we had some spaces available because, you know, if we don't have space... We can't take any more kids in. Right. So we had spaces available. And our foster mums, um, Abby and her husband, Daniel, weren't able to have their own children. So they were very keen to take in little children who they could really bring up as their own. So they went and visited Eddie in the children's home uh, and had some visits with him, got his photo. They saw his photo, so they got to know, you know who, their new child. And Eddie got to know who his new mum and dad were going to be. And on that day that they went to court to be placed, Eddie ran straight up to Abby and climbed onto her lap mm. and <laughs> sat there for the duration of the of the um, the court proceedings and then went home with this huge smile on his face because he's now got a mummy and daddy. Mm. This is the first time he's ever had a, a dad in his life. Um, and the bond has just been incredibly quick. And I think one of the things we look at this happy little boy living in a family with other foster children and with his mum and dad. And we think, OK, happy picture solved. That's all good. But it's but it's really not, because what we often see is that children who've had this huge injustice in the start of their lives with abuse and what they've suffered, they can appear to be fine when they're two, three, four years old. Yeah. Wait till they're 12, 11, 13. That's when the wheels start falling off. And that's where it's so important, the work that we do in Home From Home with our team of social workers, the therapists who we work with, the child psychologists, to be able to put that work into each child's life mm. early so that we're doing everything that we can to be able to build them into independent young adults, able to go out into the world successfully, holding down relationships and a job 
um, and not to carry that damage that has happened so early in their lives to, for it to be as healed as possible. So Pippa's ministry, Home from Home, is um, is it one of the one of the homes is supported by Wellspring International? Is that yeah? Well, Wellspring has yeah. supported us since the beginning. I was so fortunate to meet Naomi in two thousand four when we were mm. Jane and I were just thinking about starting Home from Home. So Wellspring has been a, a loyal partner. It's not even a Wellspring are not a donor; they are a partner. <laughs> we yeah. have a true partnership relationship with them, where we feel that we can be completely honest about what's going on. You know, mm-hmm. even when a even when we've not done things right, we yeah. can share that. Yeah. And so it really has been a most amazing partnership. That's amazing. Throughout those years, right um, from the beginning, yeah. That's so that's so great. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Wellspring International is the humanitarian arm of um, RZIM. And it's um, it's headed up by Naomi Zacharias. And um, just listen to your stories. I'm so thankful that this is one of the ministries that Absolutely. we're partnering with. So thank you for yeah. the, all that you're doing. And thank we're you. really pleased to have you here today. Mm. So let's get into the first question. This question is from Shantiqua Marshall. What is God's justice and what does that look like? In a nutshell, I realized that my disconnect with God is due to the fact that when I needed him most, I felt like he wasn't there for me. And those who hurt me went on with no recourse or just a slap on the wrist. This foundation from my childhood has led me to become increasingly angry, resentful, and becoming bitter with forgiveness being hard for me to do. Without getting to the bottom of this, I don't know if I can have a true relationship with God. Your response would be helpful, as well as pointing me to any scripture I can study on. So, Shantiqua, I really I feel your pain in that. And I think of our own children, of the injustice that's been done to them in the, found, in the foundations of their childhood, and see how that could yeah, lead to a lifetime of unforgiveness. I think one of the things I've learned through my journey, I've had, my journey's not as yours is, but I've had a lot of loss in my life. I've lost two of my four children, my first husband, my sister, my mom. And we have a choice in our life. Every single one of us has a choice as to letting what's happened to us in our lives about the effect that it has on you. And when I'm incredibly fortunate. Nobody's done anything to me in my life. De- death happens. I can't. There's no blame. But when thing, people have done things into you in your life, you can feel right to feel really aggrieved. And yet when we carry that unforgiveness around with us, we're carrying, um, we're carrying a poison that is still affecting us in our lives. And... Those people who the perpetrators are still victimizing you when you're carrying that around. There's an amazing book by Desmond and Paul Tutu mm. um, called Book of Forgiveness. Yes. And that has been incredibly helpful to a lot of people I know looking at forgiveness. And, you know, Desmond Tutu was so involved with um, restorative justice after apartheid and looking at helping so many people look at. The, how we can truly forgive others in our life. And so that's a book that I could very practically point you towards um, reading mm. about forgiveness. Yeah. When you um, when you look at it on that, at that sort of national level of what took place in South mm. Africa and um, obviously the devastation and the wounds of a nation and um, 
could you speak, Pippa, a little bit more to how how you saw um, that reconciliation played out, and you know how do, how did people work through that on a sort of social scale? You know, because it's both the big picture, but also mm. the individual as well. How do you even begin a process like that? Yeah, looking at forgiveness on a big scale, it's, it's extraordinary um, to see a whole nation trying to move towards that. We're not completely there. Um, we're totally lying if I said that we were there. There's so much damage done. There was so much damage done in so many years that that doesn't get healed quickly. That's not a quick sticking yeah. plaster. Yeah. That will take generations, generations mm-hmm. to, to, to heal. I was talking this weekend about a young woman called Amy Beale. I don't know if you know her story. So Amy Beale was an American um, young lady working in one of the townships in, in South Africa, Gosh, probably longer ago, 26 years ago, longer than that. And she was living and working, doing mission work in one of the townships, and she was murdered by people who she was there to help. Mm. Her parents um, founded a foundation. They they forgave her killers and founded a foundation to carry on the work that Amy was doing, which is still going to this day in one of the townships. And her former perpetrators were forgiven and came, the murderers came to work in the project. It's the most unbelievable restoration that you can imagine. Wow. We saw also the St. James Massacre. I don't know Mm. if you remember that. Mm. Um, St. James Church, where I went for many years. Mm. Um, One Sunday evening, Sunday evening service, and armed gunmen came in and shot and killed a lot of people Mm. sitting in a congregation on a Sunday. And... The church came out absolutely at that time at the beginning and forgave the killers of the people and the perpetrators. It, it, it's still incredible to mm. me how people can forgive mm. like that. It's yeah. it's it's superhuman. Yeah. I think that's exactly the, yeah. exactly <laughs> the right word. It, it is. It's superhuman. It's supernatural. And mm. um, Shantiqua, you know, you asked about if there's a place to, to point in, in scripture and the first places I was thinking were just simple statements in, in Scripture. Colossians 3 says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Ephesians 4 as well talks about forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. this is you know part of that superhuman freedom uh, that Pippa has spoken of. If we truly understand the forgiveness that we have received, that is what empowers us to be able to forgive others and even the most difficult of circumstances. So as I look back on your question, you know, one thing I would suggest, you, you talk about forgiveness being hard, and then you say, without getting to the bottom of this, I don't know if I can have true relationship with God. I just want to mm-hmm. suggest that maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's by accepting the forgiveness of God in your own life uh, and affirming that relationship in a deep way that that might be what empowers you to be able to Mm -hmm. forgive. I think if we try to figure out forgiveness on our own in our own human strength, hoping that will get us to God, uh, that's going to be a tough uphill battle. But if we receive the gift of God's forgiveness, uh, Mm -hmm. we find that that empowers us to forgive others as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think what we're already appreciating is you, you've really expressed well just how incredibly difficult 
forgiving anybody it's it's, it's the hardest thing in the world and um actually um I, I had a quote written down by Desmond Tutu before mm. you mentioned him where he he says um he said it in 1998 forgiveness is not cheap it's not facile it, it is costly reconciliation is not an easy option it cost God the death of his son and I I think um I think one one thing that um you know when we're wrestling with forgiveness is recognizing that it, this is so incredibly hard but but it was hard for God too actually it was so hard for him and and that was the the extent to which he he had to go in uh, all the way to to his death um for forgiveness to be possible for us as well and i was thinking of, of the words you said you know that when you needed him most it felt like he wasn't there for you but actually it it was the fact that that all of our need was so great that that required him to go to those lengths and um i was thinking of the verse you know when jesus says um you know, if anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And and I think sometimes when we think of that, we think of it in terms of external persecutions or the world being really hard or or things coming up against us. And I do think that's a huge part of it. But but I wonder if if, if what makes taking up your cross so incredibly hard is that to take up your cross is is to follow Christ walking into forgiveness. And isn't that just the hardest thing in the world? It's excruciating. It, it honestly is agonizing to forgive people who've wounded you and wronged mm. you. Um, but but maybe that is part of what Christ is talking about when he says, take up your cross and follow me, is walk with me mm. into forgiveness, even though in many ways this is dying to yourself in the most literal way. And it's it, it's it's the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it is also where life is found. And there's that incredible mm. irony of those two things. Yeah. What I love in the book of forgiving, um, it's such a practical step through it. And what Desmond Tutu talks about at the beginning is, is he talks, you know, it takes it so gently through. The first thing is the prayer before the prayer. Mm. And the prayer before the prayer is even when it starts entering your orbit that forgiveness is possible, that you can just pray for the ability to even be able to look at forgiving. Mm. because that's recognising what a very, very hard process it is. And it's it's not an overnight thing. You don't just mm-hmm. click your fingers and forget and forgive. Mm. It takes time to do the work properly, really takes time. It takes time in your heart, on your knees to be able to get there. Yeah. And maybe one additional scripture that could could help you here is Psalm 73, which is the one that begins, why do the wicked prosper? And it's a whole mm. psalm, really someone wrestling through the agony of why the people who have hurt them seeming to flourish and prosper in their life and, and the person who's been the victim is suffering and, and then wrestling that out with God. And I wonder if that's a helpful place mm. for you to go because it's modelling for you what true relationship might look like in the context of the pain you're feeling, which isn't to, to sort of try and squash it all down as if it's not a real emotion or as if, you know, these, these feelings aren't justified, but taking them to God and allowing him to be part of that process of working through it with you as you, you're you honest with him and your emotions. God doesn't want us to um, to hide from how we feel. He, he wants us to bring those things to him. And I think that's when we can begin that that really hard work of um, of allowing him to, to change our own hearts when we don't have the power to change our own. Mm, that's great. I love, Pippa, what you said about forgiveness can take time. Uh, mm. It's not easy. And I was just reflecting on the fact that even in terms of how God moved forward with forgiveness of us, uh, it took time, you mm. know, and Jesus came and he lived a human life and what he did on the cross didn't come for another 30 years. You know, there was a process um, of forgiveness mm. there. That makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, yeah, Shantiqua, I just want to, uh, you know, maybe close your question by just affirming that longing for justice that you have, um, you know, as Joe's mm. already said, that's a good longing uh, and just run to God rather than away from him with that. Ultimately, I think God is the only one who offers a hope for justice. 
Uh, and you said those who hurt you, they went on with no recourse, just a slap on the wrist. That's not okay. Uh, and I'm really grateful to believe that I live in a world where there is a God who can bring ultimate justice. Uh, and if I take him out of the picture, then I worry that the vast majority of injustice in the world, including the injustice justice that you've experienced, uh, does go without uh, any recourse and without any justice. Well, speaking about justice, this actually is a great segue into Andrew's question. How does social justice line up with the Bible? What does the Bible say about the social gospel? So I always go back to Jesus and what Jesus said and what Jesus did. What did the person of Jesus say in his actions and his words about social justice? Um, We look and and, and every example of it is Jesus was just. Mm -hmm. Jesus walked the journey with the people who deserved it least. Mm-hmm. with the people who weren't high and mighty, they didn't earn their place into heaven. Jesus didn't sit there with the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Jesus sat down on the street mm-hmm. with the beggars, with Zacchaeus, with the prostitutes, mm-hmm. with the real people. Mm-hmm. He clearly cared for them. He clearly loved them. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we should be doing as well. Mm-hmm. So social justice is we need to draw alongside people and to be not in and that's something I've been challenged on recently getting away from this benefactor beneficiary role and really just coming to meet people where they are at their at their level mm-hmm. um we're not thinking of ourselves as better than anybody else if we meet every single person as a child of god then that's what we've that's how we're expected to do and that's what jesus did he didn't put labels on people mm-hmm. and well he came saying um, it's not there healthy who need a doctor it's the sick and mm. um, and that's the point isn't it that Jesus doesn't just go to the, the healthy people who are already sorted out but he goes to where the need is where the hurt mm. is and um, and and that's and that's where he loves and thank goodness he went to those people because it meant he came to us as well and, mm. and we've all been there at some point and so um, yeah just not drawing lines where Jesus wouldn't draw them Jesus is fantastic at boundary crossing in, you know, in yeah. every sense he'll go to the places that people would say why are you speaking to that person why are you going there why are you paying them attention and um, and I love that call and I love that that there's that two levels to it. And I think sometimes people get caught in a tussle, don't they, where they think, oh, but you know, we just need to preach the, we just need to evangelize and preach the gospel and never mind, you know, helping people. Or people say, well, you just help people who don't preach the gospel. And you, you can't look at the life of Jesus mm-hmm. and do away with one or the other. Yeah, Jesus yeah, is, absolutely right. Jesus holds it together in who he is. He, you know, he says, I've come to you to deal with the sickness of your sin and in your heart, your spiritual sickness, and I've come to deal with, with mm-hmm. your physical. And and I think if we lean one way or the other, you know, then, then we're losing sight of where the heart of God is, a God who is holy, a God who is love, a God who is just. Mm. Um, and so I think having that vision that um, that social justice springs from the morality and the heart of God um, and letting that be what, what leads our steps, always saying, God, show me where you're leading. Show me and what would you, you do in each and every um, situation that we're confronted with? What, what does... Um, where would you have us walk into this? And and sometimes that takes discernment because we're in a world that's crazy right now over social justice. And, and it, sometimes it's hard to know, <laughs> um, Lord, in, in the kind of sea of anger and uproar and, and pain that people mm-hmm. are feeling like, show me where you are. And I think so often where, where God is, is leading us to say, hey, forget about the big political arguments that are going on, but see the person in front of you. See, who's yeah, the individual? Absolutely. Who's yeah. the one who's hurting? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just reminds us that, Jesus didn't say to love just your Christian brother or sister, but he said to love your neighbor. He said to love everyone. He even said to love 
your enemy. And Jesus, first and foremost, looked at the individual in front of him. He looked at people. He saw them. He loved them. He looked into their eyes. He sought justice in that individual life and in the context of their relationships. And then that broadened out more widely to society. He didn't start just on the macro level of cultural justice, but he started with real people. Mm individuals and yeah and doing it from an authentic point of view not doing loving because we're told to love okay well i'm being nice to you <laughs> yeah. you know yeah, but but actually authentic loving yeah. mm-hmm. which means having a long term relationship doesn't mean going on a quick mission trip and think you've done your work that's mm-hmm. not authentic authentic rather you know love one person and really do it properly than try and spread it around so many people and not be authentic about it Pippa, how do you do that? Because um, <laughs> how do you do that? Because well, I'm just messy. thinking it's, you know, it in so terms messy. of because some days, you know, you just wake up and you just don't feel like loving somebody. You don't feel like serving. So how, it, you know, in the ministry you're doing, in, the, in all the many families who are serving these incredible ways, how, how do you live that out? Well, it's hard because yeah. we're human mm-hmm. yeah. and we don't feel beautiful and, you know, warm and loving towards people all the time. Um but what we can do is to be is to be authentic. I mean, yeah. I th- you know, that's it. Coming back to that is what is so important, mm-hmm. and to to really draw alongside somebody to meet them where they're at. And again, it's this sort of up down level benefactor beneficiary. It's not about that. It's not I'm coming to love you because you you deserve my love. It's it's drawing alongside somebody where they're at and 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 seeing how I, how I can love you most appropriately where you are. It's not something I'm doing to you. It's something that I'm, I'm being with you. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And one more question, Pippa, on this topic. I think sometimes people can feel paralyzed when you do begin to open your eyes and mm. see actually the injustice and the horrors that pervade our world. And you almost don't do anything because, because you start to see the need, but it's so vast. So how does one get to the point when they begin to open their eyes to injustice and to need, but then find a way to focus in in the way you have on something where you can make a real difference concretely it's starting again going back to what you said one person mm. it's it's again the micro it's not the macro it's coming down to the micro level of one person who is the one person who today you can reach out to amen and connect to and make a difference in their life in an authentic let me just say it again, in an authentic way. Exactly. <laughs> you know, really doing it, not because you're being told to do it, but because you can feel a heart connection with that person who's one person who I can do. And if you can do it with one person, then tomorrow you can do it with one other person. You don't have to be thinking about starting an entire movement to do it. We started, when we started Home From Home, we talked about, okay, one house. Yep. We can do one house. We can do one house with six children, one foster mother. And that's what we did. And that one foster mother, Nikki, is still with us today, 13 years later. Mm. Of her six kids, four of them are the four original children who came into that house. Mm. And we move from one house to two houses and you move from two houses to, and you move like that. Mm. And I was saying yesterday when I was speaking with, at a church in, in Augusta saying, if, you know, God has so exceeded our expectations, but if we knew then what we know now about how big it would have been, I would never have started home from home. Yeah. It would be way too big and scary to do. Yeah. So fortunately, he never shows us the whole big picture. You know, it's like yeah. there's a vision. Okay, yeah. we can do that. Knowing how much it's going to cost to fund it every month, for example, things like that. The, all the problems you're going to have, you don't do. So keep your eyes low. You know, keep your eyes low on the people you're people you're, you can help. 
with never losing sight of the one who's above you. Mm. It's really encouraging. It's fascinating the the connection between this and evangelism. Do you guys know that? It's like mm-hmm. you can't evangelize at the macro uh, level. Exactly. It has to be an authentic relationship. Absolutely. One Amen. At a time. Yeah. Completely. Well, let's get to our third question. This is from Dave Jones. I saw a friend post a photo on social media of a starving mother and daughter lying down among heaps of trash. The daughter was holding up a sign and said, on judgment day, I'll make sure I hear God out while he explains. His issue was with how could a good and just God permit these injustices? What are questions that could be asked to engage in a meaningful dialogue with him? Well, Dave, I, I, yeah, those pictures that you see are hugely disturbing. And I know those are the things that we see on a daily basis in the children we're dealing with. I was talking with some people at lunchtime today about a little girl who's eight months old who's just come into us. And when she came in, her hands had been bitten away by, not completely gone, but bitten by rats because of the squalor that she'd been left in. And you think, how could that happen? And the truth is that God didn't make that happen. People allowed that to happen. And God has given us enough in the world to go round, and he's given us what we need to be able to reach out and help other people and not to turn a blind eye. And so when we look at what is the bad things in the world that happen, we can either turn to God and shake a fist at him and say, how have you allowed this to happen? Or you can turn to your fellow man and say, how have we allowed this to happen? And what can we do to change this? That's really helpful. Uh, And obviously, Dave, you know, this is a a huge question. Uh, It's one I spent years um, studying and there's not a simple, you know, answer to uh, how God could permit certain types of injustices. But, you know, I think Pippa said it uh, just rightly um, that a worthwhile question is worth asking quite widely. And so it's a good Mm -hmm. question for us to ask of God and let's ask that question of him and let's wrestle with him with this question in prayer. But it's a good question to turn back on ourselves and ask of ourselves and to encourage our friends to ask of themselves as well, uh, because that question uh, is just as piercing when applied to us. How can we permit Mm -hmm. the injustices that we see in the world? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if your friend is serious about this photo and the injustice, the concrete, real injustice that uh, it symbolizes, uh, then maybe ask him or her, what can we do? Is there something we can do together? Can we ask this question not just of God? Yes, let's ask it about him. Let's wrestle with that together. But let's ask it of ourselves as well. And is there something that we could be doing? Sometimes God's goodness shines through most brightly when we are actually serving others the way he's asked us to serve him. So I would say if you could actually uh, join together with your friend in the service of others in response to what he's identifying as unjust, that would be uh, a great first mm-hmm. step and a great way to ultimately open up that conversation about God as well. Mm-hmm. I think another um, question to think through um, would would just be this: um, would it would it make a difference if if God Himself was on that trash heap? Like, w- what difference does that make if He's there? Because um, it's you know, if God is far off in heaven, just watching down on that and doing nothing about it, then um, rightly, I think we would all feel extremely angry. And the question is, where were you, God? But if his response is, I'm right there on that trash heap with you, if that's what it meant for Jesus to come and and live with us and and descend to that place, then I do think 
um, that does make a difference. It shows us what kind of God we're really talking about. Um, and I was just thinking of um, of uh, the Old Testament where it says, um, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And he seats them among princes and bestows on them a throne of, of honour. And um, that used to be written on the wall of a church that I worshipped in in the year that I spent in Uganda. And again, it was something about that verse spoke to people, many of whom were also living life really on a, on a trash heap. They're living in the slums and it was a, a terribly depressing place to be. And yet um, they were encountering Sunday by Sunday a God who... Um, who actually, that was his heart to lift people um, and bestow on them honour. And um, and I think one of the incredible things about the way the Christian God does that is he does it through people. <laughs> he, he says we're his mm. hands and feet and that's Absolutely. exactly what you're doing, yeah. Pippa, isn't it? That's mm. your part of that bestowing of honour yeah. on people who, who have been left on the trash heap. And how do you... Um, how do you then respond? Because some of your kids must really wrestle with this question as well. Like, where was God when when these things happened to me? How do, how do you speak to them about some of these things? So we have a fantastic team of social workers who really know their their kids well. And our foster mums are the first line as well, who just n- know those kids and love them so much that they can walk that journey with them. Our foster mums are, are, are Christian women who are, also ask the same questions themselves of the injustices that they see, but know that this is what they can practically do with them and answer them in the best way possible. That is, is loving them. Because I know that in my own journey, walking through the deaths of a lot of people and questioning, why God? Why me? Why now? Why him? Why another death? Why this? So to be able to come to a place of acceptance that life is hard and God is good is a much easier place to be in because we're not going to know those answers till we meet God ourselves, I think, for a lot of that. Mm. Well, guys, we are out of time. Pippa, sum it up for us. What we've been looking at today have been huge, huge questions about forgiveness, about social justice, about despair. And it can all seem unbelievably overwhelming, Uh, particularly, I think, nowadays with social media, with that Mm -hmm. question we had about seeing the pictures. Mm -hmm. Things can seem so overwhelming. And if we can just take it all back to the simple, the one person in front of you, who's the one person you can reach out today to forgive or to ask forgiveness for? Who's the one person today who you can reach out and help? or ask what help it is that they need and not come with your own version of what help they may need. Hmm. Start small, start with one person, start authentically. Have to get that word in there again Hmm. with that one person who you can and it will spread out from there. Don't get overwhelmed by the whole big picture of it's all just so huge I can't cope with it. Just start small, start with one, start the one today. Pippa, thank you so much for joining us. Vincent Joe, thank you. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next week. To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. If you're listening in Canada, that website is rzim.ca.